Hello and welcome. My name is Shanna Whitaker with Saltbox Church, and we are so excited you found us and are carving out some time for King Jesus. So I invite you to put your phones down, your to-do list away, and open your hearts to receive the Word of God. Good morning. If you're here with us for the first time, welcome. If you're joining us online, I want to say welcome as well. We are in uh, Acts, and I am going to be in Acts 18 today. Um, Paul is making uh, the transition um, to Corinth. So he's going from Athens over to Corinth. And I'm going to do something probably not totally unusual, but I'm going to talk about fear because I, we're going to attempt to read this passage. We're going to attempt to get in it and under it and behind it. And we're even going to make some presuppositions about what might be going on inside the heart and mind of the Apostle Paul. And I'm going to propose to you that Paul in this moment for a number of reasons is actually full of fear. Anybody ever get afraid? I've spent most of my life thinking I'm afraid of nothing. And something about coming into my 40s, all of a sudden I've gone, wow, I have some. So I, I, let, me, let me start with this because this is a funny thing that happened on Friday. And I just, I got to tell you because I was afraid. <laughs> I was building an enclosure um, for, our, uh, for an outdoor shower. Uh, and I like to work with my hands because my brain just kind of drifts. And so I'm out there with a pair of post hole diggers and, and I'm setting my first four by four and then I'm setting a second four by four post. And I'm just not really thinking about anything and I'm digging with my little post hole diggers and I hear a conk. And I thought, well, you know, where some force is good, more is better, right? And so I take that post hole digger and, and it goes, kutunk. And it kept going. And immediately I smell natural gas. And I go, oh my goodness, Lord Jesus. Now, I'm a landscaper by trade, right? And I am really good at calling 811. Except when it's my project. And I'm at the, um, we, we live on a kind of a small lot, but two houses come together, and it's not 20 feet between both house corners. And I take a step back, and Ezra, our three-year-old, is with us, and I go, Ezra, go inside to mommy. <laughs> and I, my brain starts clicking through. And I, the first thing I'm going is, I don't understand gas. If this combusts, I don't think it can explode because we're outside, but is gas lighter than air? Is the flame going up or is gas heavier than air? Is it going to sink? And if it combusts, does it go out and get both houses? And so all of a sudden, my brain is just clicking through all of these different things, and I am like, oh my goodness, I am, I mean, scared to death. I, I literally, I, I had the little thought, yeah, once in a while... Pastor Michael gets on a stage, and he can burn up a stage, but you ought to see him burn up a neighborhood. I mean, it is clicking through my head, and I am going, if one house catches another, and then people's, I mean, I am like, so I, I pause, Ezra, go inside. So I pick up, I grab my cell phone in my back pocket, and I call Piedmont Natural Gas, and I explain to them what has happened. And I, I'd also looked in the hole, and here, I brought the piece of pipe. There's my piece of pipe. I brought it as a reminder that I need to burn up the stage today but not the neighborhood. <laughs> but, 
So I look down into this hole and I see this little piece of like PEX pipe and I'm like, I can't crimp it. I can't stop it. I don't know what to do. And I'm terrified that it's going to ignite and it's going to be this huge mess. So I get off the phone with um, Piedmont Natural Gas and I go, I have to call the fire department. I am so embarrassed to do this. The entire neighborhood is going to know, but I have to call the fire. So I call the fire department. Two fire trucks come and six or eight guys pour out. They put masks on. They load the hoses. They hook up to our fire hydrant. Our house are surrounded. They're going house to house, evacuating the whole block. And I, so the neighbors are coming out and it's like, oh yeah, there's Michael, the landscaper that hit a gas line. <laughs> and meanwhile, I'm like, I still don't understand gas and I'm still going, if it combusts, what would really happen? And then, okay, then the Piedmont natural gas guys sort of casually arrived and began to go through their repair. And we did like a five hour pipe repair. And the bottom line is I was scared to death, scared to death. <sighs> Maybe you're scared today. We're going to look at the Apostle Paul. We're going to talk about his fear. We're going to get behind um, why I believe he was afraid. Uh, then I'm going to share just a couple of practical ways that I have dealt and am dealing with fear. Not quite as funny as that one. <laughs> um, and then we're going to try to make a shift into how God might be calling you to see and even identify some of your own fear and perhaps move through it into a place of faith. Sound good? All right. Let's dig in. Um, I am, uh, I'm going to start in Acts 18, and we're going to read uh, just the first couple verses, then I'll pause and give you some context. After this, Acts 18, verse 1, I'm reading out of the NIV. After this, Paul left Athens. So remember, he's just been on trial before the Oropagus. Um, he was dismissed, and uh, being the smart man that he is, he went, I don't want to go back to trial, so I'm going to leave. So he immediately leaves. Now, just another reminder, he is by himself. So Paul almost always rolls, uh, at least in this section of Scripture, he's rolling with Dr. Luke, the guy that wrote the book. Um, he's rolling with uh, Silas. Um, he's rolling with Timothy. And then a few others are coming and going. But he's got like a group with him, kind of a posse with him, a group that's like rolling with him from place to place. And, um, he, but at this point, he is all alone. So here we go. After this, Paul left Athens and he went to Corinth. It's about a four-day journey, okay? There he met a Jew named Aquila, a native of Pontus who had recently come from Italy with his wife Priscilla, also called Prissa in another place, because Claudius had ordered all the Jews to leave Rome. Paul went to see them and because he was a tent maker as they were, he stayed and worked with them. Okay, so let's just pause here for just a second, and let's, if we can, reflect back over the last few months of Paul's life. So it's probably about 51 AD or CE, and it hasn't been but a few months since Acts chapter 16. Now, we've preached through that, it's been a number of weeks ago, but Acts chapter 16, anybody remember what happened off the top? Paul, you can, you can flip left in your Bible, you know what I'm saying? It's right, it's right there in bold. Paul went to prison, oh yeah. So Paul actually went to prison, and not only did he go to prison, but it says that they beat him and they flogged him. And at the end of Acts chapter 16, um, it doesn't really matter, I suppose, exactly where it is. Um, it's about verse 22, I think. Uh, the crowd joined in the attack against Paul and Silas, and the magistrates ordered them to be stripped and beaten with rods. So they get beaten 
naked, so totally ashamed, right? Beaten with rods. Let's just imagine a 200-pound Roman centurion or the like coming up and beating you with a rod, okay? And this is not like in Jewish custom and law, they would give you 39 lashes just shy of 40 because 40 would usually kill a person is the thought. So they'd just give you 39, but 39 lashes would leave your back without any skin on it. Some of the cuts would go down to bone, muscle, sinew. It would take months and months to recover, and some people would never fully recover. Infection would set in, all kinds of things. So it says here that he gets beaten with rods, um, I lost my place. <laughs> he gets beaten with rods, and, and then he's actually beaten also. So here's what I want you to get, is Paul is now leaving Athens. He is journeying um, to the city of Corinth. He's going four days, and not only was he thrown in prison and beaten with rods in Philippi, then he was run out of Thessalonica. Um, tr they tried to kill him. The Thessalon Thessalonica Jews chased him to Berea. He's run out of Berea, scared for his life. He goes over to um, Athens. In Athens, he's put on trial, perhaps for his life, as we proposed last week, and then he had to flee Athens, and now he's coming into Corinth. He is all alone, he is isolated, he is journeying by himself, and there is no one with him. How do you think Paul's feeling? So likely, he would have been beaten with rods and or flogged, and it's probably likely that his back has not even fully healed yet, okay? So he's probably in physical pain. He probably has wounds that haven't fully healed or are in process of healing. He is um, dejected. He is hopeless. He is afraid. And now, pause, and let's go down in chapter 18. Go down to verse 9, and we're going to go right back up to where we were. So Acts chapter 18, verse 9. One night the Lord spoke to Paul in a vision. And what does God say? Do not be afraid. Keep on speaking. Do not be silent, for I am with you, and no one is going to attack and harm you because I have many people in this city. So Paul stayed in Corinth for a year and a half, teaching them the word of God. Okay, why is Michael proposing to you that Paul was afraid? If God was, uh, did not tell Paul, fear not, don't be afraid. In other words, God's not going to show up and speak something that isn't happening. Like, it's there. It's real. It's inside of Paul. And I can almost assure you that he is absolutely terrified um, for much better reason than Michael being silly and foolish and not calling 811 and puncturing a gas line. But nonetheless, he is giving his life. He is passionately going forward, preaching and teaching the gospel. He's been thrown out of three cities. Everyone is trying to kill him. He is all alone. Okay? Now, pause there for just a minute. I want you to imagine something else. This is so hard for us to imagine, but the crux of Christianity, in other words, all of the Old Testament moving into the New Testament, hinge pins, the crux of Christianity is on the crucifixion, the resurrection, and the ascension of Jesus. Okay, so crucifixion, Jesus dies, resurrection, after he's buried, he breaks the bounds of death and hell, he resurrects from the dead, um, and then some days later, he ascends in front of a group of almost 500 people, he ascends back into heaven, uh, being kind of coronated, the world's rightful sovereign in that moment. Okay, so here is the thing, though. Paul has left Israel where people understand the Old Testament, and he's going into these um, Greek cities, and he's telling them, hey, there was this dead guy that isn't dead anymore, and you should give him your life. 
like, do the math here a little bit. I mean, just imagine um, we send you out today and say, hey, I don't like to think of Christianity as a religion, okay? It's a relationship um, with a holy God that has, has bought us with a price and saved us. But in this case, uh, Christianity is couched, uh, world around, as a religion. So if you had to start a religion, okay, and you had to journey from here um, to Washington, D.C., and maybe down to Miami and up to Boston and, and New York and whatever. If you had to go all those places and walk in and say, hey, a dead guy isn't dead anymore, but he's alive, and you should therefore give him your life. I mean, what are you going to be met with? Total ridicule. I mean, total ridicule. I mean, you'd probably be thrown in a home in no time. Like, just go try just go try to start something new and see if you can birth something that is like what well, is transformational and would absolutely transform the face um, of the entire known world. Okay, so at this moment, we tend to think of Paul at the end. So at the end, he's got all these churches, and he's written all these books, and there's all these disciples, and Christianity has exploded from this tiny little Jerusalem place up into Antioch, up into the entire European world, and there's Christians everywhere. And now it is so orthodox and um, understood that Christianity is this huge faith. But this, at the very beginning, when Paul is leaving Athens and he is walking by foot, probably hurting for four days, all the way to Corinth, he is all alone alone and there aren't any believers and he is walking in all by himself trying to explain to people what the Old Testament even is and then who Jesus is and how Jesus fulfilled the Old Testament and he was dead but now he's not dead and now he's resurrected and now he's ascended and he's the world's rightful sovereign and all you guys are wrong and all your idolatry so you should get rid of all your idols and you should repent and give your heart to this guy that was dead but isn't anymore. How do you think he's feeling? Terrible. Terrible. And I would actually propose to you that he is probably at one of his lowest points for God to show up and to say, do not be afraid. Keep on speaking. Do not be silent for I am with you and no one is going to attack you or harm you because I have many people in this city. Now, you got the Apostle Paul and he's fully steeped um, in all of the Old Covenant, the Old Testament, he would probably have had almost the entirety of our Old Testament Bible fully memorized. He could have recited it. So the moment I would propose to you that God speaks this to him, he is immediately thinking about Joshua 1. I'm not going to linger here long, but I think it's pretty powerful. I just want to read a couple of verses. You can make a note if you want. Joshua 1, verses 1 through 9. Um, Quick background here, similar kind of situation. Moses has died. Moses led the people out of slavery in Egypt. Um, Paul is trying to lead a group of people out of slavery to sin and to their flesh and to the bonds of old. Um, Moses now dies. Joshua takes over. And Joshua is leading the people into the promised land. So let's just uh, read a couple verses here. Joshua 1, verse 1. After the death of Moses, the servant of the Lord, the Lord said to Joshua, son of Nun, Moses' aid. Moses, my servant, is dead. Now then, you and all these people get ready to cross the Jordan River into the land I am about to give them to the Israelites. I will give you every place where you set your foot. As I promised Moses, your territory will extend from the desert of Lebanon and from the great river, the Euphrates, all the Hittite country to the Mediterranean Sea in the west. No one will be able to stand against you all the days of your life. As I was with Moses, I will be with you. I will never leave you or forsake you. Be strong and courageous. And then he says it like three or four more times. Be strong and courageous. I will never leave you or forsake you. Now, back to Acts 19. 
God shows up, verse nine, one night, I'm reading between the lines here, Paul is terrified in his bed and he doesn't wanna speak anymore or preach anymore and he's give, he is hopeless, he's not seeing people come to Christ. He wants to run out of this city like he's run out of the other cities. Verse nine, one night the Lord spoke to Paul in a vision and said, do not be afraid, keep on speaking, do not be silent for I am with you. No one is going to attack you or harm you because I have many people in this city. And immediately the great apostle Paul and his like razor sharp brain is thinking back to and he's going in the old covenant, in the old way, Moses led the people out of Egypt into the promised land. And at some level he's commissioned me, Paul in this case, um, to lead people uh, from that old covenant into the new covenant. He's saying, don't be afraid. I'm going to be with you. Some of you are going, is this going to apply to my life? Shake your head. It will. Hang on. Okay. So let's go back. Well, let me, let me pause here and give you a little bit of understanding on Corinth. Okay. Um, Corinth uh, which is where Paul now is, is a, is a wicked um, city, if you will. Uh, the Greeks had a proverb, and they would actually say to play the Corinthian. So back then, they would say to play the Corinthian, and it meant to live a life of lustful debauchery. Okay? The word Corinthian came to the English language. This is old English, like UK, United Kingdom English. But it came to the English language to describe... Um, uh, reckless, boister, uh, roistering um, buck, really, is what it meant. So, so in, in Greece, um, if ever uh, y- you were, um, a, if, if a Greek person was ever going to show a Corinthian um, in a play, um, they would always show them as drunk. All right, so you're beginning to get the idea. Um, so in Corinth, dominating it, stood on a big old hill called something called the um, Acropolis. And on the top of the Acropolis was a fortress, and it was a temple to Aphrodite or to Venus. And in its largest day, this temple had a thousand temple prostitutes. And at night, those prostitutes would come down into the streets and do what prostitutes do. Are you understanding what's happening in the city? Now, I want you to begin to think here, though, because Paul didn't stay in Berea for a year and a half. Paul didn't stay in Thessalonica for a year and a half. Paul didn't stay in in, um, uh, Athens for a year and a half. But God calls Paul to stay in Corinth for a year and a half. So I want you to begin even to transition your mind because most of us here in America in our American brand and version of Christianity think that um, iniquity means or sin, great sin, great darkness means that God is not there. And I would actually propose to you that in this case, massive iniquity equals massive God opportunity. So at some level, I would even encourage you where we wring our hands and go, what is happening here and what is happening there and what is God doing? Oh, mama, no, 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 no. As things get dark and difficult to the God of the angel armies, it is a a season of opportunity and possibility. But you gotta see with kingdom eyes. If you look at it through your own lens, through your own uh, spectacle, you're gonna miss it, you're gonna get afraid, you're gonna give up and you're gonna run away. Wait a second. Okay, I want to read, um, you don't necessarily need to turn here, but I want to read 1 Corinthians 6, 9 through 11 to you. If I can go there, because Paul, now, now Corinthians is the church in Corinth, right where we are. Okay, so this is kind of cool. 1 Corinthians 6, 9 through 11, Paul's writing, and he says, 
Or do you not know that wrongdoers will not inherit the kingdom of God? Now, who is he writing this letter to? The church in Corinth. It's just like, uh, it'd be like, if you, if you go on our website, you could see we have all these overseers. So it's almost like one of our overseers realized that we were in some error as a church, and they wrote us a letter and sent it to us to correct the error, okay? That's, what, that's what's happening in the Corinthian letters. So let's go back. Um, 1 Corinthians 6, verse 9. Or do you not know that wrongdoers will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived, neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor male prostitutes, nor practicing homosexuals, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor slanderers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. Here's the crux, verse 11. What do you think the Corinthian church is built on? You ready? Verse 11. And that is what some of you were. Okay, so... I want you to fully, and and he goes on, it's beautiful if you finish that little text, but it says, but you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ by the Spirit of our God. So when God sees the city of Corinth, he is is seeing a city that of course is full of sin and of course is full of iniquity, but it's also full of absolute opportunity. That's why God sees it. So when Paul is sitting here, you can just imagine he's watching what happens throughout this city. And of course he would be, or it makes sense to me at least, that he would be deeply discouraged and almost want to hang his hat up and go, I just give up and I move on to another place. So God has to show up and say, hey, don't be afraid. I'm with you. All right, let's keep going. Verse 3. Um Verse 3, and because he was a tent maker, as they were, this is Aquila and Priscilla, um, he stayed and worked with them, and every Sabbath he reasoned in the synagogue trying to persuade Jews and Greeks. Okay, so you get an idea of Paul's like regular rhythm. What's he doing on the Sabbath? Preaching in the synagogue. What's he doing every other day? Working with leather, making tents. I mean, that that is exactly what he's doing. Verse 5, when Silas and Timothy came from Macedonia, Paul devoted himself exclusively to preaching, testifying to the Jews that Jesus was the Messiah. This is an aside, but why in the world would he all of a sudden start to preach totally and give up tent making? They brought a gift. They brought an offering. Like Philippi and some of these other churches gave an offering. Silas and Timothy came with some funds, and it allowed him to stop making tents. Verse 6, but when they opposed Paul and became abusive, this is the people in Corinth, he shook out his clothes um, in protest, and he said to them, your blood be on your own heads. He's quoting an Old Testament passage here, Ezekiel 33. Um, But I am innocent of it. From now on, I will go to the Gentiles. Okay, verse 7, hang with me. Then Paul left the synagogue and went next door to the house of of uh, Titus Justus, a worshiper of God. Okay, like, let's just explain this for just a minute, and then we're going to get back to fear. But it's, so Paul is at the synagogue, and they essentially kick him out. He dusts the, the dust off his feet. He shakes out his clothes symbolically of the Old Testament and go, your blood's on your own head. Um, and then he decides to go Right next door. This is like if y'all kicked me out. If you said, all this grace alone, faith alone, Jesus alone stuff isn't working for us. We want somebody who's more religious and teaches self-effort and like, you know, work really hard. And we're going to kick you out, Pastor Michael. And so what would I do? Well, I'd just go right on over there to Alderman Elementary and I'd start preaching there. And what do you think would happen? 
Some people come over. Would everybody? Probably not. But Paul is so unafraid. Like we here in America get so worried about things like divisions and church splits and frustrations. And Paul's just like, oh, well, you didn't accept me here. He walks next door. And what's he start doing? Shelling down the gospel and people start coming there. I mean, this is, this is absolutely wild to me. <clears throat> okay, a worshiper of God. Um, verse 8, Crispus, the synagogue leader and his entire household, believed in the Lord, and many of the Corinthians who heard Paul believed and were baptized. So, again, it's like if y'all kicked me out and I went over there and started preaching and people started coming over there, and then the new guy that y'all put in here, well, guess what happened to him? He came to Jesus and he said, so long, y'all, I'm hanging over there too. And so he then left. You guys follow me what's happening here? I mean, this is like... This is like church drama all over the place. And I'd actually say to you, if you come here today or if you've been in another church or if your heart is even wrecked with disappointment over pastoral failure or church failure or sin or whatever it is, I would say God is not disparaged or discouraged. I think he's grieved by leadership sin and by people's sin. But in a situation like this, the kingdom of God continues. Don't you dare be left out because you're hurt and disappointed and bitter and stop getting in church and hanging with people and moving because somebody else hurt you. You hear me? At the end of the day, you have a responsibility, just like Paul, to pick up and move on with where God's moving. And when somebody stops moving, you go, oh, well, I'm moving on. You hear me? Okay. Verse 9, one night the Lord spoke to Paul in a vision, do not be afraid, keep on speaking, do not be silent, for I am with you. In other words, I've given you this land. This is the new promised land. The, king, the, the promised land in the Old Testament was the center, um, if you will. The kingdom of God in the New Testament becomes the center, orchestrated by the person of Jesus. Okay, Paul stayed in Corinth for a year and a half, teaching them the word of God. <clears throat> All right, let's pause here and see if I can tie some of this uh, together. I'm going to cross-reference one more thing. I realize I'm in three or four places today, and you're just going to have to trust me. I'm in 2 Corinthians 10. That's up on the screen, verses 13 to 16. And I'm going to see if I can circle all this together. 2 Corinthians 10. This is the second letter to the church in Corinth. Where is Paul right now? Corinth, he's also correcting error and sinfulness. So here's what he says. Chapter 10, 2 Corinthians, verse 13. We, however, were not boast beyond our proper limits. But we will confine our boasting to the sphere of service God has assigned to us. If God assigned Paul Corinth, is Paul called to go there? 100% yes. Okay, so we will not boast beyond our proper limits, um, he, uh, but will confine our boasting to the sphere of service God has assigned to us, a sphere that includes you. Verse 14, we are not going too far in our boasting as would be the case if we had not come to you, for we did not get as far with you with the gospel of Christ. Verse 15, neither do we go beyond our limits by boasting of work done by others. Our hope is that as your faith continues to grow, our sphere of activity among you will greatly expand so that we can preach the gospel in regions beyond you. Okay, there's all this talk here about sphere and proper limit, and you're going to have to just trust me here for just a second. But when God calls someone, um, he also equips them. But when God calls, he is opening um, a door to his movement in that region. So 
Paul was essentially kicked out of Athens. Did Paul's sphere at that moment include Athens? No. So he moves on to Corinth. God says in Corinth, don't be afraid, keep preaching. Is Paul's sphere in Corinth? Yes, it's very important. All right, let me, let me flip the metaphor and see if we can get it here for just a second. Um, we're in coastal Wilmington, North Carolina. If Abby and I decide next week, well, we want to live in Washington, D.C., we're going to go there and plant a church. Has God called Michael and Abby Mattis to Washington, D.C. right now? No. Is that beyond our sphere? Yes. If we go beyond our sphere, should we be, um, a, 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 have fear of the Lord on going beyond our sphere? Yes, absolutely. So I want you to get something here. The Israelites did not leave the desert and go into the promised land until God led them by way of Joshua when their God-given sphere or their God-given calling began to open up. Paul, the same way. He's only going to go where his God-given calling or God-given sphere um, takes him, where God leads him. So you, you get this idea um, that, that Paul is functioning uh, within his sphere, just like in the Old Testament, they're functioning within their sphere, and the kingdom of God is then moving from the unseen eternal into the here and now, but only if Paul stays in his sphere. You follow me? All right, hang on. I realize you're, some of you are like, what? It's coming. Okay, L- let, me, um, let me tell you a couple of my fears, and then I'm gonna shift and make application into your life, okay? You're just gonna have to trust me. All right. Uh, let me tell you about a, uh, something that happened a number of years ago. I had an elder, um, and, and I answer to elders. You know that? So as a pastor, I answer to elders. So I had an elder, and the elder would say um, to me a number of times, um, Michael, uh, you preach pretty well, you know, not great, but pretty well three out of four times. But one out of four times, it's like terrible. And I think I was supposed to be challenged or encouraged. Don't get defensive for me. Like, forget that. It's not worth it. I think I was supposed to be challenged or encouraged or something. I'm not really, no. I'm not really sure. But guess what got in my head? One out of four times, you're a terrible preacher. And the other three times, you're kind of mediocre. And so for like six or eight months, I would stand up to preach. And guess what? About halfway through my message, I'd, I'd think, is this my terrible preach? Like, I forgot where I was, and I'm bored with this preach. I wonder if they're bored. I can't wait to go. I mean, even, a, even like a tuna fish sandwich is better than this. And all of a sudden, I found myself inside my own head. Fear is beginning to take root because of something someone said, probably well-meaning, although super misguided, and it takes root inside of me. And instead of living under the holy overshadowing of the call of God, perhaps like Paul as he preaches in Corinth, I'm suddenly living under the overshadowing of my own fear and I'm looking at my inadequacy and my lack and my inability, and I'm standing up to preach, and all of a sudden I feel um, totally not up for the task. Now, I, to- I believe with almost certainty Paul is preaching at, at Titus Justice's house, um, T- uh, Titius Justice's house, and he's preaching in the streets, and he is under the same thing. He's afraid. What if the Jews from Thessalonica and the Jews who chased me to Berea, what if they show up and try to kill me? Or what if these people rise up like they did in Athens and they take me to court? What if they, what if they take my life? And here's the like difficult, painful thing. What would happen to Paul at the end of his journey? He'd be killed for his faith. Like Paul had an intrinsic knowledge this was probably coming, but God is saying, not yet. Don't be afraid. 
In order to combat that fear in my own life, I actually went to Corinthians, the church in Corinth, 1 Corinthians 2, verses 2 through 5. And I began to say to myself when I preached, For I resolved to know nothing while I was with you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. I came to you in weakness with great fear and trembling. My message and my preaching were not with wise and persuasive words, but a demonstration of the Spirit's power. And I began to celebrate my lack. Now, Second thing that has been a point of great fear in Michael's life. You've heard some of my story. If you're new here and you haven't heard my story, I've got a wild testimony. I spent seven years in a cult. But as part of exiting that cult, there was all sorts of um, things that happened in, in a court of law. And I was accused of some terrible things. I did some terrible things, but I was actually accused of some things that weren't true. But when I get falsely accused, I have a trauma response of fear. I actually, I'll have to go see a counselor and go, help me! Help me, because if, it's, if I'm accurately being accused of something, I can just take responsibility. Hey, that was totally accurate. That was my fault. Will you forgive me? I was wrong. No problem. But if something is false and I'm accused of it, 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 it creates this thing inside of me, and I can get gripped and locked down with fear. Okay, now, I, I want to shift, and I want to see if we can take um, some, some notes on what Paul's going through on what's happening in his life and make some application into your life. Are you ready? All right, number one. How do you overcome fear? You identify your God-given sphere and calling and you function within that sphere. Was Paul within his God-given calling in Corinth? 100% yes. If he's called, God will provide and whatever even happens is under the sovereign rule and reign of the king. Now, if, if like the idea of hearing God is new to you or the idea of the still small voice of God, I'd encourage you to read Hearing God by Dallas Willard. It's a textbook on the subject. Hearing God by Dallas Willard. But here's the thing about Paul in this moment in Corinth. Here's the thing about Michael, and here's the thing about you. If you fight to put yourself somewhere, if you connive or manipulate or, or manhandle or womanhandle or you make something happen, guess who has to keep you there? You. But if you wait and patiently watch what God's doing and operate within your God-given sphere and calling, like Paul was doing in Corinth, in time, if God promotes you into something or leads you into something, guess who's going to keep you there? It's the difference between like the white-knuckled life and the God has this. So I'd begin to ask you, what sphere has God called you to that you might be resisting, you might not see, you might not know, or you might even be afraid of? And I would say to you too, you can run ahead of God in fear, but you can also lag behind God in fear. Fear can make you leave too soon. Paul could have ran out, run out of Corinth. Fear can make you lag behind so number one, identify your God-given sphere and calling and function within that sphere. I love where Paul says, we just read it in 2 Corinthians, but Paul actually says he prays that his sphere would expand. So he's going, I pray that once my job here is done that it expands. Number two, how do you overcome fear? You name the fear to the Lord Jesus, to yourself and to a trusted friend or two, and you repent. 
Like this is really simple. And if you've not, if you've never, if you haven't heard someone use this word repent um, in a context that's encouraging, like there's some old school religion that'll beat you over the head with repent, and it's like a performance-based thing, and that is not what I'm saying here. To me, repentance is activating the finished work of the cross of Christ Jesus to transform your heart and life. That's what repentance is. So the moment you repent, you're activating all power, the resurrection power of King Jesus in your heart and life. So if you can begin to name the fear, I'm afraid of standing up and preaching because that elder said, I'm afraid of getting in a, in a fight with my spouse. I'm afraid of losing a child. I'm afraid of, you fill in the blank and you begin to talk about it and name it and then repent of it and then trust the Lord Jesus with it. You follow me? <clears throat> Let me throw this out there. God will only deliver you from the things you call enemies and wanna be delivered from. In other words, there's things that we as humans hang on to, right? There's fears that we wanna hold as security blankets in some ways, and God will not deliver you from what you call a friend or a security blanket. He will only deliver you from what you call an enemy and, and repent of and take to the power of the cross. Does that make sense? Okay, how do you overcome fear? Third thing, you search the scriptures for a passage that demonstrates in Christ that you've overcome that particular fear. You live in it, you memorize it, you live under the holy overshadowing of the scriptures. You let the Holy Spirit work in and through your heart and life. Like, here's this kind of stuff I do. I'll, I'll identify something or the Holy Spirit will identify something in me. I know there's some fear. I know there's something he's called me to overcome. I'm gonna find a scripture verse. I'm gonna put it on a sticky note um, in my bathroom. I'm gonna put it on a sticky note on my car dashboard. I'm gonna write it on my phone screensaver and I'm gonna to begin to like meditate on it and think about it. You, you'll hear me talk about declarations, but there is power in the very word of God. In other words, did Paul just get up one day and go, well, I'm not afraid anymore. No, he lived under the word of God where God said, don't be afraid, keep on speaking, do not be silent, I am with you. So you live under that holy overshadowing of the scriptures, the infilling power of the Holy Spirit, and you begin to let it sift your life, standing on it, knowing that because he is in it, he is working on it, it is going to be okay. Come on. I'd even say to us, in the areas where you're afraid, let God speak to you. And if you're, in an, if you're functioning in a sphere that's not yours, get out of it. Go back to where he's called you. If you're living in fear, name the fear to the Lord Jesus. Name it to a trusted friend. Repent. If you're living in fear, find a scripture that demonstrates you've overcome it in him and like live under the holy overshadowing of that scripture. And I would even say stop being weak and passive and rise up in the resurrection power of King Jesus. The fourth thing I would say is face the fear. Get up and do the thing. Joyce Meyer used to say, I don't know if she still says it, but she used to say, do it afraid. Like, just get up and do it afraid. Sometimes you go, okay, this is the promise of God. I'm in my sphere. I'm functioning in what he's called me to do. But sometimes you're just afraid. Sometimes I sit right there during worship and I go, Lord, I don't think I have anything. I got a few little crusty bread and a few little crusty fish. And if you don't like take it and multiply it, I don't have anything that's gonna wow anybody. It is just about you. It is you and you alone. This is all I have. And you have to get up and just do it afraid. I had to get on the phone and call the fire department 
afraid. Now, that's kind of a silly example, and it's not a perfect parallel, but nonetheless, I'm afraid I'm going to be embarrassed. I'm afraid my neighbors are going to make fun of me. I'm afraid I'm going to have to come in here on Sunday and tell you my story, right? I'm like, oh my gosh, this is so embarrassing. I'm a landscaper, and I just broke my gas line. Face the fear. Do the thing. Don't back down. When you're knocked down, get up. Do it again. Sooner or later, the kingdom of God, your preparation and divine opportunity and God's providence will all intersect and propel you into God's purposes for your life. Let me say that again. Sooner or later, the kingdom of God, your preparation, divine opportunity, and God's providence will all intersect and propel you into his purpose for your life. The fifth thing that I would say, the last thing, is you can live in fear of circumstances or people, or you can live in the fear of God, but you cannot live in both simultaneously. One of those fears is going to dominate and control your life. And I've got news for you. The fear of the Lord, I don't mean like a I mean like a deep awe, a reverential fear, a deep respect, acknowledgement of his sovereignty, his holiness, um, his kingship, that he's outside of time. Acknowledging all that, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom, confidence, security, purpose, life, direction. In other words, when you are in your sphere, when you are in God's calling, when he has called you to a place, when he has commissioned you and he has anointed you and he has sent you, then you are absolutely safe and you can be rock solid confident from the beginning to the end. This is freedom from fear. I think I'd say as we move towards communion, I am shocked at how much fear is in my own heart and my own life. And I'm shocked at how many times I have to come back to the Lordship of Christ. And God does not expect you and I to do it on our own. He actually calls us to surrender it to him as sons, as daughters, as heirs, as people who've been crucified with Christ, taking up our cross, surrendering it to him, and experiencing the resurrection power of the Lord Jesus in and through our life. Amen? Amen. Father, as we transition to communion, I pray that you would help us. Father, I pray that you would help us be a people who live free of fear. Let me rephrase that. Who are regularly exiting our fear and finding confidence in Christ. Father, I pray that you would help us be a people that would rise up under the resurrection power of you, Lord Jesus, and find that type of freedom. For communion, I'm going to read out of 1 Corinthians chapter 11. This is the church in Corinth. A lot of the New Testament is Paul's letter to the churches in Corinth. Here's what he says in verse 23 of chapter 11. For I received from the Lord what I also passed on to you. The Lord Jesus, on the night that he was betrayed, he took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it. And he said, this is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, after supper, he took the cup, saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this 
whenever you drink it in remembrance of me. For whenever you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Father, would you take these common elements before us today, and Lord, would you set them apart for your sovereign purpose? Father, I pray that we would not approach this table under the weight of what we've failed to do or what we've done, but that we would approach this table celebrating. It is by grace alone, through faith alone, through Christ alone, that we have been resurrected to the finished work of the cross of Christ Jesus in our lives. And Father, I pray that as we rise and we take communion together as a family, that you would fill us with your very spirit. Lord, would you be here with us? In the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen. Oh, I'm caught up in your presence. I just want. send us out today that you would send us out as people who have conquered fear by the resurrection power of Jesus. Father, I pray that you would send us out as a people knowing that we have been bought with a price, knowing that you are God Almighty. And Father, I pray that you would lead us and we would follow. Father, we worship your holy name.
And I pray that as we go, this people would know your great grace, your presence, the shining face of your countenance upon us. Father, may we follow you both now and forevermore. Amen and amen. Thank you for listening today and being part of the Saltbox online community. If we can pray for you in any way, please leave us a comment below or connect with us through saltboxchurch.com. Remember, just Jesus, nothing more, nothing less.